Reflection one, the psalm. Plenty Koo refused to speak of his life after the passing of the buffalo, so that his story seems to have broken off, leaving many years unaccounted for. I have not told half that happened when I was young, he said, when urged to go on. I can think back and tell you much more of war and horse stealing, but when the buffalo went away, the hearts of my people fell to the ground and they could not lift them up again. After this, nothing happened. There was little singing anywhere. Besides, he added sorrowfully, you know that part of my life as well as I do. You saw what happened to us when the buffalo went away. Plenty Koo was a chief in the Crow Nation during the conquest of the Great Plains. He is noted for having cooperated with the U.S. government, allying with them against the Sioux and the Cheyenne. And as a result, he was able to negotiate the survival of many more of his people and a larger territory for their tribal reservation than would likely have been possible otherwise. He was politically active throughout his life after the conquest and worked continuously to preserve the vitality of the Crow language and culture, and many of his efforts were successful. But when he sat for an oral history as an old man, he found that what he must say was that after the passing of the buffalo, nothing happened. Catholic theologian David Toole reflects on Plenty Coup's words, posing the question for us to ponder. What does it mean for the possibility of things happening to disappear from your people? What sort of rending of the sky or stake driven into the heart of things could lead to such a sentence? Sure, things come and go. They occur. There are occasions, maybe even many of them, and some of those may be even important. But after this, nothing happened. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayer? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us the scorn of our neighbors. Our enemies laugh among themselves. The psalmist has more hope than does the crow chief, but only barely. In the story of the Old Testament, the Lord is the kingmaker, the vine grower who uproots and plants nations here or there as fits his plans and purposes. But for the time being, the Lord has uprooted Israel and let it be carried off into Assyria. The story of their people, which began with Abraham, carried down the line through Moses, and then Joshua, and then eventually David, seems to have come to a screeching halt. The very creation and existence of this people had to do with a covenant God, uh, with God over a stretch of land. So torn from the land, what happens next? I wonder sometimes if the United States, though we continue to be peppered by occurrences, some of them very important, isn't at a similar place as where Plenty Coup saw the crow. 
We recently saw The Eternals as a family, and I won't go into too much detail if you haven't seen it yet, so don't worry. But leaving the theater, I was reminded of something I've thought for a while now, that Marvel movies are our society's continual attempt to tell the story of the bomb without shame. Always our heroes, the preservers and protectors of life and liberty, set out with clarity of conscience to uphold the right and to suppress an evil that threatens human existence. And always, somehow, they end up in a kind of philosophy 101 conundrum by the end where they have to decide to kill as few people as possible to keep the story going. Try as we might, the logic of sacrifice, where the sacrifices of those who have lost their lives in previous wars demand that the next sacrifice has to be made or else the earlier ones would have been in vain, this logic dogs us. It haunts us. There have been, of course, occurrences. The Cold War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, Desert Storm, 9-11, and the ensuing wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. But still, in the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, it's as though after the bomb, nothing happened. We're in a kind of a moral feedback loop waiting for a war that offers the promise of a sacrifice of ourselves that is pure enough that it can show that we deserve to have once wielded the bomb. Until that happens, can anything? How can our story continue? Reflection two, the prophecy. Why did we start in on this topic? After all, this is the fourth week of Advent. The wise men should be walking into Herod's hall today. The angels should be warming up their singing voices. Instead, I feel a little bit like I walked up here and in the first three minutes I stepped in something. And you all are going to be sitting there for the next 15. Watch me try to wash my shoe. So maybe we should back up for a minute. This is the final Sunday of Advent, the season we mark off in order to inwardly prepare to remember Jesus' birth. It's a season for house clearing, for candle lighting. While the world around us in a, in a grotesque celebration of the market is filling their stomachs and their houses with markers of glad tidings and great joy, a Christian Advent quietly insists, not yet. Sure, prepare as you have to, buy and wrap and all of that, but do not deck your halls just yet. Instead, in the passages of your soul that you traverse every day, take down all the decorations. Unplug all the appliances that prevent you from noting your most difficult most entrenched and deepest fears and hopes. And there, in the dark, when you've cleared away everything that hinders, just wait. Perhaps light one candle, perhaps two, but still, wait. Not yet. And if there are three candles, or even four, 
even now, wait. Ask yourself in this bleak and pregnant place, what truly matters? You were born. You are alive. You will one day die. What truly matters? Hold on only to that. This is the moment of a Christian advent. The moment we can strip away everything and see with clarity what really matters and what needs to be released. Former Archbishop Rowan Williams in a Christmas sermon a few years ago said it this way, that I'm paraphrasing here. That one important move toward a good Christmas is to ask yourself, where in your heart is there still a vestige of the idea that God is up in heaven needing to be kept smiling by your behavior? Where is there a part of you that in your heart of hearts is not ready to be loved the way you are loved? That insists that you are unworthy, bad, shameful, to find this subject and even merely to bring it into God's presence to acknowledge it will be enough to show you if you should hold on to it or let it go it may take weeks it may take years but doing this and how important it is to do this is what we are reminded of now so we should not be surprised to find ourselves in a Christian advent having to encounter anew the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Those stories are the decorations of our passages, after all. And so we should hold each one, even tenderly, and bring it to the light of God, asking, do I keep this one? Should I change this one? Should I release this one? And this will not be easy, and if I'm being honest, I'm not sure I'm the midwife who will be able to carry you through it. But if we can come to clarity about our society's narrative of sacrifice, that, above all, should be the point of Advent. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. The prophet Micah reminds us that the final candle being lit in the darkness the continuation of the vine of the vine grower will be planted in the womb of a girl and birthed in Bethlehem, the city where once Ruth sought refuge when there was famine in the land. This has been a place where, surprisingly, stories continue. This is the town of the kingmaker from which one will come who will call out his people from the nations. Reflection three, the sacrifices. 
The New Testament is not always clear about exactly in what sense the story of Abraham's God continues in Jesus. On the one hand, they saw Jesus as the next chapter of the story. In Matthew, Jesus is the next and final king in the line of David, the next teacher after the pattern of Moses. John argues that Jesus continues the story of God's vine growing through Israel and then out into the world. But on the other hand, the New Testament writers also knew that Jesus was the lens through which they saw all of Israel's story, as though they could, couldn't help but look backwards without first looking through his life, death, resurrection, and teaching. So in John chapter 1, he was in the world, and the world came into being through him. The early Christian preacher Irenaeus calls Jesus the second Adam, who restores the image of God and humanity that had been marred. The next chapter. But Jesus was also the point, the first fruits, the ultimate purpose. Thomas Aquinas likens Jesus to not the next chapter, but the diamond at the center of all of history. He was the second Adam born, but he was also the only begotten son, eternally begotten before all worlds. The second sense, the diamond, reflect, refracting its light in all directions. And it is in this second sense that Christians discovered that they needed to interpret Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. If you began reading in Genesis, you could easily assume from a kind of a cursory reading of what you find there that, okay, people sinned, and so God decided to forgive their sins for a while as long as they were willing to kill a few bulls and goats, burn a bird and some grain here and there to atone for their sin. But this system was imperfect, and it was time-consuming, and so eventually God decided it would just be more efficient for everybody just to make one big sacrifice and save everyone the time and labor. But this is not how Christians think of sacrifice. As we read today in Hebrews, Jesus' obedient death is not, in the end, a new and improved Levitical sacrifice. In fact, the Levitical sacrifices were not ever sufficient to the task to begin with. As the writer says, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the true form of those realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who approach. Otherwise, would they not have ceased being offered since the worshipers cleansed once for all would no longer have any consciousness of sin. The sacrifices made in the Old Testament were never the means by which God forgave people. In fact, the writer says they were an ongoing reminder of the inadequacy of sacrifice. They were that voice insisting unworthy, unworthy, unworthy year after year. Try as they might, the spot would not scrub out. So we might ask, when the Israelites transgressed the laws that God had given them to live by, how did God forgive them? 
It's hard to wrap our minds around this, but Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that it was because, God forgave them because when Jesus came into the world, he said, see, I have come to do your will. The offering of the body of Jesus was the only sacrifice in all of history that counted. This sacrifice and this alone happened in the plenty coup sense of the term. And we are being incorporated into that sacrifice. We are being offered to the world as a living reminder that God does not hold their sins against them. Jesus abolishes sacrifice forever, past, present, future, by his own obedience to God's call, a call not to resist the hands of those who eventually put him to death. The story of humanity continues not because of the sacrifices our society makes for survival, but because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus is not one chapter in the story of sacrifice. He is the diamond, banishing every shadow of sacrifice with the light of the cross and resurrection. So Jesus also abolishes the sacrifices that we believe are necessary to recover our own sense of dignity. Again, the archbishop's question surfaces. What more do I think I need to do in order to make my life acceptable? This too bring to the light. There is no part of God that is holding back, waiting for us to ennoble ourselves. God is determined to be with you. Reflection four. The Song of the Virgin. I'm tempted to leave it there. God with us. Jesus, our Emmanuel. But if we left it there, we would miss the import of the song that Mary sings at the home of her cousin, Elizabeth, six months pregnant, Mary, only three. Elizabeth says that Mary is blessed because she believed that there would be a fulfillment of what God had spoken to her. And Mary breaks out with the song that she carries in her heart, in which the Lord, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. All this and more according to his ancient promises. Mary rejoices that God has looked with favor on her and done for her something truly great. She recognizes not only the gift of a baby, but also something of that baby's import. Through this baby, Mary intuits, the continuation of the story is possible. The future hope of the prophets and even of the people of Israel as a whole has moved radically into the present tense. We heard in Micah repeatedly, he shall, he shall, he shall. But seven times in her song, Mary says, he has. This pregnancy 
is a political action in the history of the people. Remember, the people planted by the vine grower, the kingmaker. Mary's song also echoes, echoes very nearly the song that Hannah sings way back in 1 Samuel, when Hannah is offering Samuel for the service of the Lord. Samuel, who would eventually be God's instrument in the selection of David to be the king. In fact, the similarities between these two songs are so strong that a number of scholars speculate that either it was drawn directly from 1 Samuel or that it was a kind of political anthem that was circulating in Israel in the first century as people were hoping for God to call another son of David who would overthrow the Romans. She sings of the toppling of thrones, the uplifting of the oppressed, emptying treasuries, feeding the hungry. In this sense, Mary picks up the prophetic voice exactly where Micah and the other prophets had left off. The kingmaker is continuing the story. But in a way, as the story comes to show, that not even Mary could have anticipated. Mary, who perhaps expected that her son would claim authority and take up arms against the Roman oppressors, could not yet have seen the new thing God was doing. God was indeed calling people back from the nations, as Micah had hoped. But this new people would not be bound together by family or tribe or sacrifice or political allegiance. This kingdom, not of this world, would inhabit the other kingdoms of the world but would be constituted in part by the witness they bear to the one who refuses to repay evil for evil. As theologian Stanley Hauerwas put it, according to the logic of the kingdoms of the earth, we are fated to kill and be killed because we know no other way to live. But, he continues, through the forgiveness made possible by the cross of Jesus, we are no longer condemned to kill. A people have been created who refuse to resort to the sword so that they and those they love might survive. They seek not to survive, but to live in the light of Christ's resurrection. Behold, the kingmaker has done a new thing, something horrible, profound, and beautiful has happened. Therefore, let us bend our swords into plowshares, because there is nothing we can do to deserve this. And that is precisely the point. Thanks be to God.